The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 14th chapter. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. For it is truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name I, you ask me for anything, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth which the world cannot receive, because it neither sees nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in with you. I have said these things to you while I am still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, today is the day of Pentecost, a day that we often refer to as the birthday of the church. It's that day on which the Spirit of God rested like flames on the first disciples and ignited a new relationship with a loving God throughout all the known world. It's very easy to get caught up in Luke's very human attempt to describe the indescribable events that happened on that first Pentecost day. And by doing so, miss what is really going on. As our first lesson begins, Luke tries to describe the sounds of the winds, tornadic, frightening, and rushing through the room like a freight train running down the tracks and shaking all that is in the house. Just as that fearsome wind subsides, Luke describes what looks like flames of fire resting over the heads of the disciples, tongues of fire, and suddenly they are able to speak in tongues, that is, different languages of people outside the tent. And yet, even as they are speaking with these tongues hanging over their heads, they are not burned, 
not scorched, not consumed by this fire, much in the way that the burning bush was not consumed by fire as God spoke to Moses through that burning bush. What Luke portrays is miraculous, inconceivable, indescribable. It is, as scholars will tell you, much like other appearances of God we see in the Bible, full of sound and fury of earthquake and unconsuming fire of whirlwind and crushed silence. This perhaps leads us to the question, how are we supposed to comprehend the incomprehensible? And since the dramatic events that happened at Pentecost have not happened since, what does this indescribable event mean to us today? The answer to these two important questions is found in the verses immediately following the events of the upper room. Luke continues. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at the sound of the mighty wind, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard the disciples speaking in their own native language. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not these speaking Galileans? Then why are each of us hearing them in our own language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. How is it that we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power in our own native language. Think about it. These were mainly Jewish people from 14 separate lands, stretching almost 3,000 miles from Italy in the west to Iran in the east, Contemporary cities like Rome and Jerusalem, as well as ancient and obscure locations as Phrygia and Pamphylia. Yet all these various people from all these various places can understand for the first time the mighty deeds of God in their own tongue rather than Greek or Hebrew, which they would have had to learn in order to communicate with each other. Those were the two languages in that part of the, of the Roman Empire that were used, Greek and Hebrew. So why should we care that they learned about God's deeds in their own language rather than the ones that were more common, like Greek or Hebrew? After all, if they learned in Greek and Hebrew, they should be able to understand, right? Several years ago, a friend of mine was called here in New England to develop a Lutheran mission to Hispanic people. He had been born in Central America, as a matter of fact, in Guatemala, and the stole comes from Guatemala. He had been born in Guatemala to Norwegian-American parents, missionaries, who were there as he grew up. So he grew up perfectly bilingual. 
speaking both perfect English they learned at home and perfect Spanish they learned in Guatemala. When he spoke in English, he spoke much of the way many second and third generation Scandinavian Americans speak, that, that sort of measured, thoughtful speech. You know, we, we don't try to, to get too excited about things. But when he spoke in Spanish, he changed. He was a different person. He did a lot of hand gestures. He spoke in, in very excited tones, very rapidly. It was like there were two different people in the one same body. The languages that we were born into and first speak, our native tongue colors how we see everything. Even if we learn other languages after that, our primary language still colors everything and we think best in that language than any other thing in which we have to do some translating. So think about it. Until the Spirit opened up the Word of God to them in their own native language, they were hearing God's words with a little bit of a deficit. Then, they finally heard at Pentecost God's amazing deeds of power in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for them, not just for the Galileans. They had retained their old identity, but with a new center. They are now centered in Christ. The Spirit made sure that they were centered in Jesus because they heard about Christ in their own native language. Many people are saying that we uh, are living in an age of identity politics where we identify ourselves our identities come from our certain markers, or totems, as they call it. We label ourselves and are labeled by others by certain things that we believe or certain things that we do. We label ourselves and are labeled by others for our race, our ethnicity, our language, our sexual orientation, our financial worth, or other markers and totems. As some social scientists have pointed out, we live in an age where these markers both attach us to a tribe and also exclude us from other tribes. We're no longer thinking in terms of nations. We're thinking in terms of tribes. An old Arab proverb goes like this. Me against my brother. My brother and I against my cousin. My cousin and I against my clan. My clan and I against my, my uh, tribe. My tribe and I against my nation. My nation and I against the world. You see how insulating that is? We stay with the ones we're closest to and grudgingly only open it up as we have to, but boy, when we can, we revert back to that, uh, that littlest thing, me and my brother. This is the way much of the world thinks of today. Certainly we see it here in America in a lot of different ways, but, but one way right now that we're seeing is we are so polarized about what to do about guns here in America 
where some people see a marker saying we must have gun control and that's the only thing we can do. And the others are saying you can't take my guns away from us. There's no middle ground. And you're defined by a tribe based on what side you are on. We need folks to find common ground. That splitting up into tribes is the exact opposite of what Pentecost is all about. Rather than our human desire to exclude and polarize other people and put us into warring camps, Pentecost is about the diversity of people whom God has made. Each one of us is as unique as our DNA, each one of us with gifts given by the God in whose image we are made and the God in whom we are centered. Pentecost is our sign that the God that we worship, the God that we know, seeks an ever-expanding tent, a big tent, if you would, that includes all and excludes none. To use a metaphor, what the world wants to do is divide us into a single color to say that we must be one color, like this red at Pentecost. And red is a beautiful color at Pentecost. But I've worn my Guatemalan stole today for a reason. It has every color in the rainbow. Yeah, there's a lot of red in it, but there's blues and greens, and yellows and whites and blacks. It's a reminder the colors that God makes, the colors that God chooses, are not uniform, monochromatic, but rather diverse, huge, massive. We can't even get our eyes, our thoughts around it. Likewise, I have seen God's spirit, God's Pentecostal spirit, expanding the Lutheran church, in which I've been ordained for 42 years. The parish I grew up in was uh, formed by two struggling missions shortly after World War II. One was a mission to Swedish Americans, the other was a mission to German Americans. And neither one of them was getting enough people, so they merged. And even though they liked one another in the parish, the Swedes sat on the left and the Germans sat on the right. That meant that my family sat on the right because my dad was German and my mom was brought in because even though she was Scottish, she was married to my dad. So that was okay. But when Judy and I got married, my late wife Judy and I got married because she was from a Swedish-American family, they wanted her to sit on that side. They, called, they said we had a mixed marriage. Well, after I was ordained, they invited me back for a celebration of my ordination. And at the, at the celebration, at the, uh, at the little banquet they had for me, one of the German men thumped me on the back and said, oh, here's George, one of our German boys, and thumped me on the back. And this wonderful Swedish woman looked with steely eyes and said, pointing at Judy, yeah, but she helped. We, we all want to divide ourselves and think we're all special. 
And we are all special. That's not the point. But it's very easy for us to slip into those tribal identifications if we're not careful. I'm happy to say since the years after my ordination, things have changed in the church. Six years after I was ordained, 70% of the Lutherans here in America merged to form the ELCA, of which we are part. No longer would we define ourselves as Swedes or Danes or Norwegians or Germans or Finns or Slavs. No longer will we willingly be one of the whitest denominations in America. Since then, urged by the Holy Spirit, we have been set out to be the church that God has called us to be. We have been cracked open by the Spirit to female leadership, to African-American, Asian, Latino voices, to welcome our LGBT brothers and sisters. The Spirit has formed with us, forged with us relationships with Episcopalians and Methodists, Moravians, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and African-Americans. It has repudiated the writings of the Nazis and even Martin Luther's anti-Jewish sentiment. It's welcomed relationships with Muslims and other religious groups. We're not the only one that the Spirit has done this to because all the mainline denominations who worship Christ are finding themselves also called in this wider understanding of who the church is. We are all God's children. God loves our diversity. Each one of us has gifts from God given for the good of all. The Spirit ties us into the radical love of God, even though we do not smell the same, look the same, act the same. We are truly all brothers and sisters in Christ. In 1967, in response to the civil rights struggles and the ongoing Vietnam War, Louis Armstrong recorded what, was, what is now one of his most popular songs, What a Wonderful World. While it didn't go very far here in America at first, it did better over in Europe, it became popular in movies and, and since then has been downloaded millions of times on both iTunes and Spotify and other platforms like that. In a re-recording of that song in 1970, when the war was still going on, when there was civil unrest and worries about pollution and care of the earth, remember that was when the first Earth Day happened, he re-recorded the song, but this time with an introduction. I wouldn't play it for you except for copyright restrictions, so I can't do that, but I'll, I'll try and put my my Louis Armstrong best impersonation on for you. He says this. Some of you young folks have been saying to me, hey, Pops, what do you mean it's a wonderful world? How about them wars all over the place? You call them wonderful? And how about hunger and pollution? 
They ain't so wonderful either. But how about listening to old pops for a minute? Seems to me it ain't the world that's so bad, but what we're doing to it. And all I'm saying is, see what a wonderful world it would be if only we would give it a chance. Love, baby, love. That's the secret, yeah. If lots more of us love each other, we'd solve lots more problems. And the world would be a gasa. The Spirit is calling us today and always to be together in love at Pentecost, centered in the love of Christ who pours out his Spirit upon us. And yes, centered in this love this world, indeed, will be a gasa. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.